Um, now, I'm very pleased to be able to introduce to you my good friend, Ituha Cloud. He is a man who just received an award for excellence. Now, myself is a man who's been recognized in this field twice with participant ribbons and a track and field day. <laughs> I understand what it takes to receive such an award. But he is a man who has an incredible testimony of what God has done in his life, and God has turned it all around, and he's promoted him. He's going into schools, to youth groups. He went to Washington, D.C. to be recognized for what the Lord is doing in him. He's an incredible man, so please would you join me in welcoming to the stage my good friend, Ituha Cloud. <laughs> yeah, y'all snuck that one in. I wasn't expecting that. That was good. Man, I am so excited. Let me just confess right away. In the mornings, it's hard. I got to like struggle to get up and kind of make my way through with the coffee. Man, we do that worship and it's like, bam. It's like, I feel like, honestly, like I got what I need and I can leave. But, but how sad would that be? If I left and didn't tell the good news yeah. of what God does in our lives. I'm so excited. I mean, real quick, before I get into the prayer and the message, uh, Pastor Jeremy is just an incredible man of God. Give him a round of applause. His wife, Anna. Um, we go back to the days in which he was juggling Pastor Lee's schedule, and I was cleaning Pastor Lee toilets. That's how far back we go, <laughs> because I was the custodial guy, and... I can clean well, but when they had a hole in the wall, I'll just look at that hole and be like, Jesus, help me, because I didn't know how to mud anything. Um, but yeah, so I'm just excited to be here. I've heard about the passion, the way the Lord is moving here, and it's just exciting to be a part of. So I just want to say before we get started, Pastor Lee, Radiant Church, your family back in Richland sends their love, and we're just excited to hear what's going on here. So let's open it up in a word of prayer. Father, I just thank you. For every person that is here today, Lord, I pray that your will would be done. We submit our agendas. We've tried every other remedy, and all we've come up with is more pain. Father, it is you and only you who set the captives free. It is you and only you that gives us peace beyond our understandings, Father, our circumstances. And so, Lord, we just pray that you have your will today, that we walk out of here with this message we let it sink deep into our hearts, and it moves us to a place of action. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So my story starts out in New York City. I ran into a couple of Bronx natives up in here. I thought it was cool. Been out here for 12 years and haven't seen that happen, so that was pretty awesome. But I grew up in New York City uh, in the 80s. And if you know anything about South Bronx, in the 80s it was very poverty-stricken. Um, it was very normal to walk from block to block and see vacant lots. It was very normal for me to see homelessness, to see drug addiction growing up. Uh, my mother was very passionate about us kids, me and my brother, and she did the best she could. She had a very limited education. My mother's from Belize. She came over to America when she was 22, probably had a seventh grade education was a hard worker, and that's what she did. She, she worked hard, she cleaned apartments, she cleaned uh, people's buildings, anything to get money. And so, with her time away, as she worked hard and provided for us kids, it gave us a lot of time on the streets. Now, unfortunately, 
my dad and her separated when I was three. So I never had this relationship with him or even really knew who he was. I seen pictures and that was about it. Um, growing up was tough, man. That one factor, not having a father, really bothered me. There was something missing and I knew it. And I didn't know how to deal with my emotions in a healthy way. In fact, all I knew was frustration and anger. And I remember in elementary school, I wasn't a dumb kid. I can do the work, knew how to read well, was okay in math. But I just, it seemed like the social skills that people had, I had something missing. And so if I got frustrated right away, I'm in a fight. I just knew how to express it through a physical way. And it landed me in the principal's office time after time. Um, I want to say around the age of eight is when I would say the first wound was really initiated. At the age of eight, we had, it was my mother, my brother that I always knew and grew up with, and then I had a half-brother who was around 16 years old, and he was from a different dad. And he lived in Chicago. And so he became a teenager and was struggling out there, and so we got reconnected, and he came to New York to move in with us. Now this brother was different than the one I was raised with because he paid attention to me. It was like, this dude was like always around and we'll go outside and play and we'll climb the trees and we did things and initially I was thinking, man, this is awesome. You know, here it is, this guy's like a father figure, someone I can look up to and admire. I wanna say about eight months into his stay, things changed. And before my young mind could understand what was going on, I was being sexually molested. And he looked at me and he said, don't say nothing to nobody. And I felt a lot of guilt and a lot of shame, and I, I tucked that wound deep inside. After about a year of this, he moved away. He went back to Chicago, but the wound was inflicted. I remember nine and ten years old having conversations, bringing up more about my dad with my mother. Where is he? Who is he? And she would say things like, well, actually, he's this actor slash model in California. I'm like, what? I need to meet this guy. Here I am, I'm over here, you know, we having like Cheerios and water, and you telling me this guy <laughs> is a model slash actor? But she wouldn't give me more about, you know, his location, and she said, you know what, when you're older, you can go ahead and you can find him, and if that's your desire, I won't hold you up, you can find your dad. So I kind of held on to that as a hope ticket in my heart, like, man, one day I'll meet my dad, I'll get out of here, and things will be better. It never happened. It never happened. The second wound in my life took place when I was 12 years old. Regular day, like any other day. I'm in my back room and it's playing this game called Nintendo. Do, 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 do. Super Mario Brothers. Just a kid playing a game. And I remember hearing the phone ring and this wail come out of my mother. Like this this noise that just expressed pain, that expressed hurt right away. Drop the joystick, run to the living room, and my mother's in tears. I'm like, Mom, what's going on? She's like, your father's dead. What? What are you talking about? Your father passed away. Well, how did he pass away? He died of AIDS. What? I'm like trying to process this. I'm like, well, how did he die of AIDS? So the more the story unfolds and we get the news, I find out that 
the reason why my father separated and left my mother was that he decided to pursue and choose a gay lifestyle. And in the process of that, contracted HIV and died. I was confused, confused. Dad was gay, I was like, what is this? What am I to do with this? Again, the anger rises up. Depression hits. And when I say depression, I'm not talking about I'm having a bad day and I'll shake it off tomorrow. I'm talking about depression that sets inside of you in your bones. Depression you can't get away from. Depression that then begins to produce suicidal ideation. Thinking about checking out. My temporary fix was drugs. Start hanging around some kids in the neighborhood, smoked a little weed, drink a little drink, and I could breathe. See, I thought I found the answer. Because I always felt nervous and kind of, but when I smoked and drank something, it felt like it was a relief, a release. My addiction progressed pretty, pretty rapidly. It went from a weekend thing to an everyday thing to by the age of 14, sniffing cocaine. How a kid at the age of 14 can get money to sniff cocaine? Well, it's simple. You, you do robberies. And just like the drugs, my robberies progressed. In the beginning, I would do small petty crimes, stuff like snatch people chains, take them to the pawn shop. Then I got involved with this crew, and we got guns. So we began to rob cab drivers, people at gunpoint. By the age of 16, my mother kicks me out, can't handle me, been in and out of juvenile homes, and I'm desperate to get drugs. I'm a heroin addict. By the age of 16, I'm putting $50 up my nose a day just to get by. And so I devised this plan. I had these two guys, and I said to them, look, I checked out this spot on 3rd Avenue in the Bronx, and it's easy, man. It's just this old man that sits behind this counter. The location of the store is perfect, dude. We go in, we get the money. There's three ways you can go and blend in. Nobody you know. So one of the guys that I was talking to was real street, kind of knew, did things. The other guy was not. This guy was like, by the books, goes to school, good grades. But I knew that he wanted to be cool. He wanted to be down. See, back then I had no idea of the gift that God gave me to be a leader of anything. But here I am leading these two men somewhere. And so I tell them, I assure them, listen, man, this is easy, dude. I said, you, you go in, we walk halfway up, you get that shotgun out, you announce the robbery, I'm going straight for the cash. And he's kind of hesitant. I said, dude, relax. I've done this a thousand times. Got away with it. We could do this, man. And I was believing that. I believe we could do this. So the day comes. Let's execute the plan. Caesar walks in the store. He walks halfway. And I come right behind him, and I begin to rush towards the man who has that money. I got a mask on my face. Old school hat with the holes, looking like a typical criminal I've seen on TV. And as I begin to run to this old man, <clears throat> he catches on to what's going on. And his hand comes from underneath that counter. What I see is now a 38 revolver. So I go from pursuing him to retreat because I don't have a gun. And as I begin to run for my life, 
I yell, gun. And I run and I hit the door and I hear one shot. Not three, not four, just one, one shot. And as I get out the door, I check myself. I'm good. And I turn around and I see Caesar running. But he's not running as fast as I am. And I'm like, dude, hurry up, hustle, let's go. He makes it about a half a block, trying to talk to me. Blood comes out this man's mouth. He makes it one block and collapse right there. And I'm freaking out. This is not the way I planned this. What's, what should I do? What should I do? Think to I think I can't, I can't stay here and go to jail. I can't leave him, let him die. I think, think, think. So I run. I, okay. And I come up with a plan. I call on a payphone. That's when they had payphones. Called on a payphone. Anonymously, I said, please send the ambulance to 3rd Avenue. Someone's been shot. And I rushed back to my neighborhood. And I just was so twisted, so bent up, so nervous, like, oh my goodness, what have I done? What have I done? Two hours later, I get the message, Caesar's dead. Caesar's dead, lost his life. We didn't get a hat, a t-shirt, a dollar bill. He's dead. So I'm trying to lay low, but as any neighborhood, it spreads fast. Who was involved? What was going on? And two days later, they apprehend me. 16 years old. They said, we're going to try you as an adult. They gave me one and a half to four and a half years. I spent six months on Rikers Island, one of the toughest jails in America. Seen some incredible violence. I went in there. I wasn't this size or this height was very short in stature. And I said, I got to start doing push-ups. I looked around. These people are too big. But as I was in jail, I didn't think to change. The average person would say, man, you got four years. We got to look at this and evaluate what's going on, not me. See, I was so involved with this street life and this mentality that what I filled my mind with was books on John Gotti and the mafia. I'm trying to be the best criminal, as if that's possible. I'm trying to find the loopholes. Where did they go wrong so I can go right? Four years later, I get out, I'm 20 years old, grew up, got a little muscle on me, and the street got a little bit of credit, got a name for myself. Nine months later, because I go back to the same neighborhood, doing the same thing, picked up them drugs all over again. Nine months later, I'm back in jail for another robbery. This time they give me three years. And this time I'm in jail and I'm evaluating my life. What's going on, dude? Mind you, all this time that I'm doing, the people I used to run with are dropping like flies. They're dying in the streets. In my second bid, I got a phone call. I mean, I called my mom's, and on the conversation, she's crying, and she informs me that the brother that I grew up with, he's paralyzed now because a bullet severed his spine. All of these things are going on. So this time around on my second bid, as opposed to picking up John Gotti, books of Billy the Kid, 
I'm searching for this God. And I begin to just study religions. I study Buddhism, Hinduism. I study the Quran. And I began to read the Bible. It was like every time I think of that Bible, something, it did something inside. It just rang true. But still, I wasn't ready to commit. I wasn't ready to commit to that. I was just looking, browsing. I'm in the salad bar, <laughs> checking things out. I get out, and I do want something different, though. I don't want to return to this life of crime. I don't want to do drugs. I want to change. I'm just not quite sure how. So I get off parole, and I start thinking, man, where can I go? Because at that time in my life, I was convinced it wasn't me. It was New York City is the problem. <laughs> if I get out of New York, I'm good. So I began to evaluate where can I go. And then it's like, it dawns on me, dude, you got family on your father's side that lives in Michigan. Why don't you come out there? So let, me call, let me call these people up, see what they say. So at the time, my grandmother was alive, and I tell them my plan. I said, you know, you guys already know how I've been living and what that's about. I want to change. Sure, baby, come on out here. We'll help you. You know, and all that. You know, I'm, 20, I'm 26 years old, and I'm coming to Michigan and moving in with my grandma. And what most people would take for granted, like, Growing up, going to high school as a teenager and going, you are getting crucial things put in place in your personality and your skill set that prepare you for life. Since 16 to 24, 26, I'm in jail. That's all I know. I've never been on a job interview, a resume. The most I did in jail, I got a GED. And I learned how to type 41 words a minute. That was my skill set. That was my skill set. I remember going for job interviews and my heart just like coming through my chest, Pastor Jeremy, because it felt like every time I went to interview and they asked me about me, it felt like I was in front of the parole board. And I never made the parole board. They always gave me more time. <laughs> so I come out moving with my grandmother. Oh, man, I'm getting away with it. I move with my grandmother. A week here, I meet my beautiful wife. I meet at this really romantic place called Wayside in Kalamazoo. <laughs> and I say my little line, hey, how you doing? I'm fine. Those your real eyes? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> real slick talk, all right? And so, uh, but yeah, we... We link up, and by no means do I tell her, by the way, I'm this career criminal who has a huge addiction problem. No, I present my very best to her. But no matter where you go, there you are, and who you are is who you are. So in time, things come out. In time, my addiction grows, and she's there, and she listens. Nine months into the relationship, she announced her pregnancy. And for any average person, this is great news, not for me. What it does is it opens up an area in my life that I tried to suppress for the longest. It opened up the womb, the father womb. Because if she's pregnant, then I have to be a father. And what is that? It's a father. 
don't know what that is. My depression goes up. My self-doubt. You ain't nothing. No good. The enemy began to whisper to me. Man, you better off dead. You ain't going to do nothing but poison this kid. So one day, without her knowledge, I come up with a plan. I'm checking out. They had me on these depressive medications. I waited for her to go to work, and I took about 100 pills. She worked the whole shift, came home, and I'm unconscious. She tried to revive me, smack me, no response. Rushed me to the hospital. I'm in a coma for three days. I come out, and I am mad. I'm so mad. I want to die. I don't want to be here no more. I'm trying to run from my problems. I did four rehabs, and every rehab just didn't seem to work. Over time, she couldn't take it no more. She kicked me out. I was homeless for one year. I probably smoked crack cocaine every single day. At the end of that year, I felt so hollow as a human being, man, so empty. I said, either you're going to change or you're going to die. So I was fortunate. I was going to the gospel mission to get a meal, and there was an old friend from an old rehab. He seen me. He said, hey, man, you need to get back into treatment. So I go to treatment, trying to do what's right. Depression's still there. I end up in a crisis center. My wife's trying to help me out. We're not really together, but she's still trying to help me. And she calls the pastor at Radiant. Pastor Lee was busy at the time. He was tied up, so they sent Pastor John. Pastor John comes and sees me, and he says, hey, man, what's going on? And I begin to just lay out all of my pain. I'm going through this. I'm going through that. I feel like I want to change. I don't know how. I want to die. So if you don't know anything about Pastor John, that brother knows the word. He knows the word. So he would just be like, all right, write this down. Or he had a Bible, and he would highlight this. And then he began to pray over me. He put his hands on me. Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 13 said, says this. And when he prayed, the Lord listened to him and was moved by his request. He put his hands on me. He began to pray in tongues. He began to pray with authority. It was almost like he had a righteous anger that he's got to deal with this addiction. And he began to just go for it. And, and, and in the middle of this prayer, my wife was there, good friend Charles was there, if it just felt like, like something popped, like, like, like something broke. And I felt like this weight lift off of me to the point where I look at my wife, I said, did you see that? Like, see what? I mean, something just left my body. See, prior to this, I heard about miracles on 34th Street and seen movies. Look, a miracle happened that day because it's now eight and a half years later, and I'm still clean and free in Jesus' name. So listen, man, this miracle happens. Whoa, this is powerful. God is real. Get plugged into the church. Immediately, I'm on fire. Where can I serve? What can I do? They said, uh, you can be an usher. I said, well, you know I used to stake money, right? You don't want me. They said, no, it's fine. We know you okay. All right. So we got the bucket. We passing the bucket around. But I feel good because I'm honest. I don't want nobody money. I just want to do the right thing. 
served the people. Been an usher for two years, and then I had the privilege of getting on staff, where I began to clean and, and do things like that. Met Jeremy Brown, so many other incredible people. And it was like the things that were inside of me that I had no idea was there began to rise up. After doing the staff thing, I went to Radiant Ministry School and began to learn the word and begin to get a hunger for it and spend time with God. And the Holy Spirit began to work. See, when your Holy Spirit is just GPS, it's going to direct you always in the right path. And so the Holy Spirit began to, to give me an understanding, and my vision became sharper, and my hunger for the Word grew, and my hunger to serve people grew. But I'm truly, I truly believe, had I not been willing to step out of my comfort zone, because was, I was nervous to be an usher, man. Somebody be take that for granted. Look, I'm from New York, where we like this, hardcore. Usher, you got to smile and shake hands. You know, it's a whole different thing here. So <laughs> we're doing it, but I'm letting you know, as soon as I began to step out of my comfort zone, some gifts began to rise up. I truly believe, had I not did that first step, that the gifts and talent God placed inside of me would have laid dormant. I would have never knew that I can do what I do today to speak to you. I would have never knew it. Sometimes we got to get uncomfortable we got to shake it up because this is the truth is that nobody in this room is a giftless person. The Bible tells us everybody has a talent. Everybody. It's not just reserved for the pastor. You have access to the Holy Spirit. Just like John that day when he seen me in my troubles. Here is this, his earthly problem. He said, wait a minute, I'm a child of the king. I got heavenly resources. Huh? huh? What do the scriptures tell us over in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 3 verse 12 says, Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. What can't you have? What's impossible for you if you have God? You want Ann Arbor? Jesus has given you the keys to Ann Arbor. Jesus has given you the keys to Ann Arbor. He is not short on supply. You know, I'm reminded about Moses. Love Moses. Because if you turn to Exodus on your time in chapter 3, and you begin to read the story of Moses and his encounter with God, there's a dialogue that goes on. And God begins to tell Moses, listen, I'm calling you to a great thing. I need you to move. Move where? I need you to go back to Egypt. And I need you to be the mouthpiece for me, to set my people free. And there's a huge protest on Moses' part. Wait, 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 God. Oh, you got the wrong dude. I don't speak well. And he, he begins to talk about all of the things that disqualify him for this job. But God, being the great I am, he says, no, you're the one. You're the one. So in the beginning, we have Moses who's kind of shrinks back and is a little intimidated about this assignment until he finally figures out, you're God. I guess I need to listen. And he steps out of his comfort zone. 
And what do we see as we read Moses' story? Moses turns into this bold leader who goes in front of Pharaoh and looks him dead in the eye and says, the great I am has sent me. Let my people go. The great I am. When I first read that, I was like, how could you introduce yourself? The great I am. I am everything. I am all you need. I am life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I encourage you, as you see your pastor here, who loves you dearly, he needs help. He needs help. He needs your support. He needs your love. He needs you to step out of your comfort zone. Jesus has given us all a commission to preach the gospel to all the nations. You guys are doing an incredible job. I just sat here and heard about the money you raised and how you're taking the message beyond Ann Arbor. All of these places where lives like mine's like yours, are being impacted forever. What greater thing could you invest in? You tell me. What greater thing could you invest your time in than another human being? When you pass and this physical body deteriorates and we move to the other side with our heavenly king, only thing you can take is another human being because you've invited them to have a relationship with God. You want to have an impact? You want to change this world? Have a relationship with God. And from there, all good things flow. Dear Heavenly Father, we are amazed by you. We are excited to be a part of this journey to have our names in the book of life. God, I thank you that you've given us a purpose, a destiny, that throughout my mess, throughout my hurts, all this time you were waiting for me to look at you, for me to say, yes, God, I'll do it your way. All this time when the enemy tried to destroy me and take my life, you was like, I got you, son. I love you. I'm going to heal you. And I'll not only heal you, but I'll heal your family. And I'll not only heal your family, I'll heal your neighborhood. Because he loves us. God, I just pray that you continue to work in our minds and in our hearts. Those who are here today who are struggling, God, speak life to the hearts. Show, let them sense, let them know, let them feel that they are loved by you. No one goes beyond your grace. If we repent, we can turn around, God. You are there with open arms like the prodigal son. You've been waiting all this time. So, Father, we rejoice for not only what you're doing in Ann Arbor, what you're doing in the world, God. You are incredible. We don't take you for granted, Father. We honor you. We praise you. We give you the glory. And we thank you for the love that you have given us in return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.